you will, if you don't have a Bible, talk to us after the service, or uh, Jim can get you a Bible right now. If you don't own a Bible, we can get you a Bible. We want to make sure everyone has a Bible, an actual copy of the Bible uh, that, that is their own. And, but um, we're going to start encouraging more and more of you to bring your actual Bible, bring your actual physical Bible, and I encourage you to write in it and underline things and circle things. And um, this Bible is called Journal the Word Bible. It's got some extra space in the margins so you can write down notes and, and that kind of stuff. But, but bring, a, bring an actual physical Bible and just, you know, maybe for the few minutes that we're together here at church, uh, turn that phone off or put it down, put it aside and not let uh, the distractions kind of creep in there and and do that. It's great to keep us connected outside of here, but uh, when we're gathered together, we can uh, we can maybe put those down for a few minutes. And uh, so I'm trying to make a correction on that. I know we used to use phones a lot in the service, and trying not to encourage that as much anymore, so that we can be focused here. Good coffee. Um, but on uh, that on workplace, you know, workplace is a tool to keep us connected and encouraged as a body throughout the course of the week. And right now, I just started up a uh, a, a little series, just a little teaching series about spiritual attack and tactics of Satan to uh, to attack us as followers of Christ. And some of the some of the things that I've observed and noticed that he does, and and talking about them from Scripture. We're two days into that series so far. I'd just love for you to, uh, to get on there and participate in that and let it encourage you. I can guarantee you, if you're following Jesus Christ, Satan will attack you. you. We do have an enemy who does not want us to be on fire, you know, souls on fire, sold out, excited for Jesus. And, and so he will do everything he can to get us off track. He will do everything he can to divide the church, to divide his body, to, to plant ideas and and uh, get us distracted with things. And so so I just encourage you to get on Workplace, and uh, over the course of this next week, we'll be con- continuing that teaching there. And then two weeks from today, so not next Sunday, next Sunday is March 10th, but on March 17th, we're starting a new series. Today we're going to finish up Luke chapter 9. Next week we're going to do something entirely different, and I uh, we'll, uh, encourage you to be here. Don't miss next Sunday. And uh, if there's someone that you see that's missed today that doesn't know that, make sure that you tell them, don't, hey, don't miss next Sunday. Make sure you're here next Sunday, March 10th. But then March 17th, we're going to do a series called Letting Go. And it's, for, it's really fun. For one, um, I love when God do, does this. He, he did this with, uh, you know, feeding the 5,000 and how, um, how when I was teaching on that, and that was at the same time that God led my wife to teach through that uh, the principles from that for the women's ministry over the course of last month, and and uh, we were just gonna we were just gonna plow through Luke chapter ten and finish that up right before Easter, but uh, feeling like there's some stuff that we need to talk about and uh, and and get us kind of moving forward and building up momentum leading up to Easter, and and one of the things is that we we want to give you something that, that uh, is invitable. We've talked about we want to be an invitational church. We want to be a church where, where we invite people into what God is doing here. And going through the Bible, as great as that is, and, and we do that, you know, there may be things that are hard to, that might be harder to invite someone into 
a church where you're talking about what we're going to talk about today, because it's going to be hard, it's going to be heavy, it's going to be weighty. But maybe someone has a felt need, a, a really pressing need that, that you know that they have, and you can inv- if you know we're talking about that, you can invite them to come hear what God says about that. So we're going to do a series called Letting Go, and God led us to that and led my wife to that. Women are going to be talking about the same thing. That was, that was not prepared other than by the Holy Spirit, and God works incredibly that way, and I love it when he does that, just like God preparing worship and giving the worship team songs to choose that, uh, that match up with what we're talking about. And so it's amazing how God works um, in, in that. And so March 17th, we're going to be talking about letting go of a few things. The first week is going to be past hurts, letting go of past hurts. We're going to be dealing specifically with forgiveness and talking about about what it means to forgive. And so if you know someone in your life that that's, that is wrestling with forgiving somebody or has some unforgiveness or or needs to forgive someone or needs to be forgiven or forgive themselves of something that they've done, then that would be a great week to invite them to come and participate on March 17th. And so um, we're going to be we're going to be passing out all the information and getting the topics and the dates we're talking about the topics and we'll stick to that so that you can invite someone. We just encourage you to to pray and expect that God will give you someone to invite to one of the weeks of that to one of the weeks of that series, and that God will speak to them during that time as well. In fact, uh, let's stop right now for a minute and just pray. Heavenly Father, we we know that you have people in our lives who are far from you, but they're close to us and. They have a relationship with us, but not yet a relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would give us an opportunity over the next few weeks to invite those who are struggling with unforgiveness, who are struggling with fear and anxiety and worry and some of those things that we need to let go of, those insecurities that are holding us back and weighing us down, that that as we see people wrestling with those, and maybe we even wrestle with them ourselves, that that you would just give us the courage to invite, to make that invitation, that not, not, to, not to have a big attendance on a Sunday, but that there would be someone whose life is eternally touched, that, that someone would hear from you and experience your presence in a way they never have before as they're gathered among us, your body of Christ, and filled here with the presence of the Spirit, that they would experience you and that they would hear from you and that you would speak to those issues. Father, give them a real practical truth, real practical insight that would change their lives and set them on a course to knowing you and following you. Prepare their hearts. Go ahead of us as we, as we go out and we're going to be faithfully doing what you've commanded and given us to do as your disciples. We ask you go ahead of us and prepare their hearts, open up their hearts, soften their hearts to receive you, to be receptive to what you have. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Oreos. Everyone's distracted by the Oreos, I know. So, uh, we've got two rooted groups going on right now, and we're going to we'll launch a few more right after Easter. Uh, but uh, in our rooted group, uh, there's, there's a theme. You, know, you might think that the theme would be Jesus and the Bible and all that God is doing, but it seems like the theme in our rooted group is Oreos. And uh, we've, if we, if we, I, I'm maybe 
exaggerating it a little bit, but we've talked about Oreos pretty much every single week. And I've I've learned a lot in this, these discussions about Oreos. Now I'm not gonna I'm not gonna divulge. I'm not gonna out anybody on their Oreo stance, their view on Oreos. So, so they're you know your secret's safe with me. But but I've learned something about Oreos. And I've also learned something about people. But first, uh, let me ask Oreos. Does it, how many of you like Oreos? Yeah. What what? You like them, but you don't want to eat them? Why, why don't you want to eat them? Because they're too good? Okay, so, so let me ask, so how, many, how many would say, I like the cookie part, but not the cream so much? Yeah. Okay, now, how, how many would say, I like the cream, but don't really care about the cookie? Yeah, a few more. And how many would say, I like the whole thing? All right, so, so, um, so here we got the double stuff. Anybody want an Oreo? Shad, you want an Oreo? Who else wants an Oreo? All right. Here's a couple coming at you. Sorry. All right, I'll make it. Who, who else wants an Oreo? There's one under, under you, Jolene. Trey? Sorry. Here, let me try again. Trey, you ready? I'm making a mess on purpose. Did you get it? How about a regular Oreo? Anyone want a regular Oreo? Regular Oreos? Gretchen's ready. She's standing up ready for an Oreo. All right, Gretchen, here we go. <laughs> Who else? Who else wants an Oreo? Oreos? Oreos? Sophie wants an Oreo. All right. Nice. You, you want a regular one, don't you? All right. Oh, I almost got it in your mouth. All right. Does somebody want to pass out some Oreos? You can come up and pass out Oreos in a safer manner. I know it's a little bit dangerous. Probably should have passed out eye protection for that. But Oreos, I mean, Oreos are great. I, I happen to be of the opinion that what makes the Oreo the Oreo is the Oreo, right? I mean, if you take it apart, it's no longer the Oreo, right? It, it, is, it is the combination. Now, I do take mine apart, and I'll eat, and you'll just kind of bite off some of the cream. But at least one of the bites has to be with the, with the cream and the cookie. I should not have done that. You want to pass them out? You can come pass them out. Yeah, no, no running out into the hallway by yourself now. See, I, I, uh, I think it's the Oreo as a whole unit that makes the Oreo an Oreo. I mean, that's the point of the Oreo. It's the combination, right? And yes, I'm going to make, I'm going to make a soapbox, uh, you know, self-righteous stand on how I think we should eat Oreos and think about Oreos. I am going to over-spiritualize it. So 
If you're just eating the cookie without the cream, you could just buy a chocolate cookie. That, that, is, that, is, that is not an Oreo. And, and if you're just eating the cream without the cookie, then you could just buy ice cream or whipped cream or hummus or something like that and, and get the cream that you want. I mean, they're making all kinds of combinations of Oreos, right? I mean, now they've got the peanut butter and chocolate. You've got chocolate and dark chocolate. You've got the mint and all of that. So, so it's not far away that we're going to have a hummus Oreo. I, I mean, count my words. It'll be. It will be. But you see, it's, it's the combination of the cookie and the center, right? It's the combination of the cookie and the cream that makes the Oreo an Oreo. And it's the same thing. With other desserts, and everyone's going to be going home and, and digging through and buying Oreos. But, but Twinkies, right? I mean, what makes the Twinkies special is, is that, and now you're like, oh, yeah, I don't eat Twinkies. <sighs> I don't eat things that don't decompose. All right. Well, you can decompose. That's why I think about that. Twinkies would not be special if there was no cream in the middle of the Twinkie, right? Same thing with Swiss rolls and ho-hos. If, if, it was just, if it was just the cake on the outside, it wouldn't be so special, but it's got the cream in the middle. It's like Krispy Kremes. The only, the only real good Krispy Kreme is the Krispy Kreme that has cream in the middle. That's why it's Krispy Kreme, because it's got cream in it, right? It's like, it's like the nucleus of the cell. If you don't have a nucleus then you don't have a cell, right? So if you don't have the cream in the Oreo, then you don't really have an Oreo. You've got a cookie. If you've got only the cream, then you still don't really have an Oreo. You've got, you've got cream. You know, it's, the, it's the nucleus. It's the center that holds the whole thing together. Anyone know uh, what, what, the name, the, what the two different names of uh, cells are? What? Yeah, good. You, you, eukaryotic and prokaryotic, or prokaryotic, or however you say it. But the 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 type of cell that makes up our body is the first one. It's like eureka a little bit. It's kind of how it's spelled. But the nucleus of the cell is what keeps the cell alive. And if you take out the nucleus, if you take the nucleus out of the cell, what happens to the cell? It dies. It doesn't, it doesn't morph. It doesn't change into something else. It dies. Without the nucleus of the cell, it dies. And so same thing with Oreos. Without the cream, the Oreo dies, right? An Oreo without the cream is nothing. I feel very strongly about this. In fact, in the nucleus of the cell, what else is in the nucleus of the cell? Do you know what else is in the nucleus? DNA, yeah. So, so the DNA is in the nucleus of the cell. So, so what gives the cell its identity is, is what is in the nucleus, right? So, so the DNA, the identity of the cell is found in the nucleus as well. So if you take the, if you take the cream out of the Oreo, the, the Oreo doesn't know what it is. It doesn't have an identity. So what do you call an Oreo without the cream or without the cookie? Nobody knows because there's no name for it, right? It's just, it's just a what? Luke chapter 9, 
verse 46 through 62. We're going to work our way through the rest of the, rest of the uh, chapter here. Don't worry, I know it looks like a lot, but I'm not going to spend a ton of time on the first couple of paragraphs. Luke chapter 9, verse 46 through 62. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. We're not going to put the text up on the screen because we want you to bring your own Bibles and, and read. So, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, here we go with Jesus reading people's minds again, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. So real quick, just a quick, a quick note to jot down on that first paragraph is that the kingdom of God is not a ladder to be, cli- to be climbed, it's a cross to be carried. The kingdom of God is not a ladder to be climbed, it is a cross to be carried. Now, we've talked about before how the disciples were were likely trying to position themselves so that they would be seated at the right hand of Jesus so that they could have the position of power and authority that comes with being at the right hand of Jesus. So they're arguing who's going to be the greatest, who's going to be the second in command of Jesus when he establishes his kingdom. But Jesus is saying that's not how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God is not a ladder to be climbed, it's a cross to carry. And he's already said that. And so, so he's going to keep re-emphasizing and reiterating that over and over again until the disciples understand it. Verse 49, Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Don't stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. This is critically and crucially important for us in the church and in the kingdom. We understand that, that whoever is not against us is for us. We, we are partners with a lot of churches in this area in the kingdom of God. They, they, may, they may be a little bit different from us in different ways. They may have some doctrinal differences than, that, that we don't hold. But, but we are with them and they are with us. Whoever is not against you is for you. We are partners in the kingdom with every church that believes that Jesus Christ died for their sins, rose from the dead, sent the Holy Spirit to empower us to live the Christian life. We are partners in the kingdom with them. Also, from from this paragraph, we can learn that the kingdom of God is not about personal greatness. It's about personal sacrifice. The kingdom of God is not personal, not about personal greatness, it's about personal sacrifice. The position of power in the kingdom is not the one that gets, gets you know, in, in the seat that has the power and the control. It's about sacrifice and laying yourself down and coming to him like a little child. Verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messages on ahead, who went on, messengers on ahead, who went on into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there didn't welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them 
then he and his disciples went to another village. Now, some of your text will say, some of your translations will have a text in there, a, a couple of sentences that Jesus used to rebuke them, but the NIV and the older manuscripts don't have that, so the NIV doesn't have that in there. But you might have an idea uh, of what it said that could be, could be accurate. It could not be accurate. We could talk about that afterwards. But there's something going on here that, that we need to understand. First, there's a historical context. Jesus uh, you know, is heading up to Jerusalem for the Passover. He's heading towards Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And the Samaritans had a history of, of treating poorly Jews who were coming through their Samaritan towns when they were headed toward the Passover. There was angst between the Samaritans and the Jews, and, and uh, they were destru- destroying or trying, attempting to destroy one another's temples because they both thought that they were the right worshipers of God. And so they were constantly feuding and, and trying to fight one another. And so when Jews would pass through Samaritan towns, on their way to the Passover, they would often be ridiculed, they would have insults hurled at them, and sometimes even worse, resulting in you know, even physical altercations. And so that's probably at least part of what's going on here as he sent the messengers ahead to go into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But there's a principle I think we can draw out of this from Jesus' life. That's when you turn your face towards your purpose, you should expect pushback. When you turn your face towards your purpose, you should expect pushback. Jesus has turned his face towards Jerusalem knowing that in just a few short months' time, he's going to be dying on a cross to pay for the sins of all humanity. So Jesus resolutely, he it, it, he. He put his face towards Jerusalem. You, you got to get this picture. I was going to show a clip from "It's a Wonderful Life," but there's that scene, and and it's a wonderful life where where George has run out into the cemetery trying to figure out what's going on, and then and he comes out where something is supposed to be, and it's not there, and Clarence is short behind him, and there's this this really this long head turn from George where it's he's run out to find something, and and then. And it just kind of freezes on. It's just this really long, overly dramatic scene, and it's a wonderful life. But it's a really powerful moment. And that's kind of how I picture Jesus. It's like he's been going around doing all of these things, healing people and doing, doing stuff kind of you know, around the countryside, around the areas, around where he would be heading. And then at this point in the story, it's he sets his face resolutely for Jerusalem. And now he's headed towards what he knows will be his death. His face is set towards the finish. And when you turn your face towards your purpose, you should expect pushback. When when you're headed towards what God puts you on earth to do, you should expect pushback. You should expect people not to understand. You should expect people to react against you, which is what Jesus is going to experience. And even his disciples are, are saying, you can't possibly be saying what you're saying because you are the Messiah, you're the one who is to come. So you can't die on the cross. You cannot be crucified. That doesn't make any sense. And so even some of the ones who are closest to him didn't understand what was going to happen. 
We should expect the same thing in our lives. When, when we set our face towards God's purpose for our lives, we should expect people around us to push back on that. But here in verse 57, we take a turn, and, and I want to uh, spend the rest of our time on this last section. It says, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of the man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, when you talk about, like, recruiting strategies, when you talk about, you know, a, a way to try to bring people into your mission, this isn't, you know, the typical approach. The typical approach would be, you know, hey, come follow me. There's a lot of good things that are going to happen. You're going you're to get to experience a lot of miracles. You're going you're gonna to get to eat bread from, that just kind of appears out of nowhere. And, and if, you, if you follow me, you know, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. And so I'm the one that everyone's been waiting for. So you never know what's going to happen when you're following the Messiah. And, you know, you should expect a, a, really, a really good life and, and, you know, a really joyful journey. But that's not at all what Jesus says. He says, if you're going to follow me, you know, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. There's nowhere for you to sleep. You don't have a home if you're following me. It's a real exciting call, isn't it? There are three things I want to point out and, uh, and draw our attention to. The first one is implied, and the second two are blatant. But the first one... Where Jesus says to the man who said, I'll follow you wherever I go, Jesus replied, said, foxes have, have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What we're going to look at are some but firsts. But first, I don't know if you've, if you've ever said that to God, if, you've, if God has ever asked you or called you to do something, and you say, okay, I'll follow you, but first. I, I'll do what you want me to do, but first, let me do this or let me do that. And we're going to look at a few but first. And, and this first one, I think, is, is a, about convention. I mean, conventionally speaking, you want to have a house, right? I mean, that's conventional to live indoors. You know, even in Jesus' day, people wanted to live inside. There were more people that lived in tents and that, that sort of thing. But still, people wanted to live in houses. And, and you would think that if you were coming alongside the Messiah, what you would get is a pretty nice house. But but Jesus is saying, no, convention cannot be what keeps you from following me. In other words, this isn't going to be a vacation. You follow me, and it's not going to be comfortable. So you're not going to get a mansion. You're going to get a mission. And that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. 
you're telling me that if I follow Jesus, I have to, I have to be homeless? Well, let's, let's hold on. Verse 59 said to another, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So if the, if the first but was convention, this one is but first obligation. But first convention, I can't, I want to have my normal life the way everyone else has their normal life. Am I not entitled to my normal life? Well, but this one is obligation. We don't know for sure what's happening in this story, but this man, you know, his, his father had died. He'd probably already experienced the funeral, which took about a week because he, you don't leave during a funeral in this time. You don't leave for a week because you're mourning with your family during this time. And so, so his father has died. What's, what, could be happening is that over the course of a year, the body decomposes. It's a real, real lighthearted conversation. But, but they would put the body in a grave, and it would decompose. And then after about a year, then they would go back, and they'd take the bones and, and put the bones in a box and go bury the bones somewhere else. So the tomb was just kind of a temporary holding facility until everything had decomposed, and then they could put the bones in a box. So this man's saying, first, let me go and bury my father. He might be saying, uh, you know, uh, my father died, and, you know, I've got this time about a year from now that that I'm going to have to bury him again. So let me go deal with that first, and then when that's over, I'll come. And, you know, this was tradition. This was, if this was the firstborn, this would have been his responsibility. It would have been something he has to do as a son. He was obligated to bury his father's bones. But Jesus, what does Jesus say? He said, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Well, how are the dead going to bury their own dead, Jesus? You know, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. You're not very smart, are you? Well, I think what Jesus is saying, um, he's already dead. He's, He's dead, so... You know, burying him again, what good is that going to do you? Just because something is a tradition doesn't mean it's really important. Just because we're obligated to do something doesn't mean we should sacrifice Jesus' mission because of tradition, because of obligation. I mean, he's already dead. What good is it going to do to bury him again? It's not going to save anything, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So, but first, obligation. Verse 61, still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. It's getting harder and harder, isn't it? But first convention, but first obligation, this one I would say is but first affection. Family is important. I would never argue that family isn't important. It is important. It's important to Jesus. But what I know from families that I've observed in my life, families that, that I've gotten to know and 
some of the families that I've seen struggle and, and walk through difficult seasons. I need a bigger pulpit if I'm going to have my Bible up here. Is that a family that doesn't have Jesus as its central focus will eventually implode. No matter how great your family is, family cannot be the nucleus of the family. Family cannot be the center of the family. That's not how God designed it. That's not how God created us. God didn't create us to build our families around our families. And, and if our family is the point of our family, we're going to eventually implode because it's not enough to sustain. It's not enough to build a family around the family. Family is important, but, but, but first is Jesus. See, we were made, God designed us to be to be atoms that revolve around him as the nucleus. That is how God created us, is that, that he would be at the center. He'd be central to every point and aspect of our lives, and that we would revolve around him. And as long as he is at the center of our lives, then everything stays in place, and, and everything works like it's supposed to work. But if we take Jesus out of the center of any area of our lives, then eventually it will implode. The cell will die. It will collapse on itself. But he's got this great closing statement. He says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. You can't be looking backward and forward at the same time. I don't know if you know this, but uh, one of the things about driving is that where your eyes are focused is where you tend to go. So if you're driving on the road and, you know, if you're, if you're looking you know, off to the side looking at mountains, and you, your car kind of starts to drift in that direction. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Like, if you're driving and you're distracted by something that's on the side, or you're, you're dealing with your kids who are being perfectly behaved in the back, and you're just reaching back there to love them and be kind to them because they're being so good, and, and, you, and you turn around and you just, you're such a good kid, you know, eventually your car is going to start to drift, right? You, 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 you start to go where you're looking. That's how, that's how it is with driving. That's how it is with farming equipment. When, you're, when you are out mowing a field, you, your tractor goes where your eyes are looking. And so if you spend too much time with your head turned around, which you have to do because you have to keep track of what's going on behind the tractor and the equipment back there, you have to keep, you have to keep an eye on that, but you have to be looking where you're going. You can't look backward and forward at the same time. And this was true when you were plowing with oxen back in the day. So, so you've got oxen and you've got you know, maybe two, maybe four, you know, depending on how hard the soil was. And, and you've got a couple of oxen that are in front of you and you've got them hooked up to this plow and, and you are controlling where they go. And so you've got, you've got the reins and, and you've got the handle on the plow. You've probably got this big plow and it's got the, the, the harrow on the bottom of it that's digging up the soil. And, and, and as long as you're looking forward and you're watching your line and the direction that you're going, you can, you can carve out a line right next to it because you're looking forward. You're looking where the direction goes. But, but if you start looking off behind you or you start looking off to the side, it's going to start wandering and veering and you'll go off into what you've already done or you make a mess for yourself. 
No one who puts a hand to a plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So the question becomes is where is our focus? What, what, are, we, what are we looking at? Because if we're looking at the wrong thing, what's going to happen is that we're going to compromise the mission that we've been put on. And so if we're not looking forward to what God has for us, what Jesus has for us, if we're constantly distracted by convention, by affection, by obligation, then we're constantly looking from side to side and behind us and all of the things that are going on around us. And, and our lives end up being this kind of spinning, pointless, aimless existence. Where is your focus? Are you looking in the right place? Now, I want to say real quick that, that what, what I'm saying is not, not this. I'm not saying that, that a life of following Jesus is restricted to full-time vocational ministry. That if you're going to be a real disciple, you have to give up you know, everything about life and go, go become a pastor, go become a missionary, go do something. For some, that is the case. But I think for the majority of us, that's not the case. In fact, I would say you guys have a tremendous opportunity and an advantage over me where, where you are in spheres and circles and realms of people who don't know Christ, and you know probably a lot more non-believers in those circles. And you've been given this incredible opportunity to go in there and, and have a full-time ministry. You just won't be getting paid for it. But Jesus puts you where you are on purpose. He has you there for a reason so that you can shine the light for his kingdom and, and bring people in to the kingdom of God. So I'm not saying that we have to, we have to give up our vocation and become full-time ministers, but that God might want to actually give us a focus for our full-time vocation that builds the kingdom. See, Jesus might not be asking you to do anything different. He might not be saying, you need to, you need to, you need to go and do this or that, but he might be asking you to do the same thing where you are, be where you are, but have a different reason or a different passion or a different way that you're doing it. He might want you to be exactly where you are, and he has you where you are for a reason, and the reason that he has you there is for his purposes. So maybe what we need isn't a, a new vocation, but we need a new motive. We need to have God's motive. We need to have his motivation for why we're there. And this question we've asked a time or two, we're going to continue to ask is this. What is the why that drives your life? What's the motive of your life? What is motivating you? What, what is driving you? And I would say if there is a but first, then there's something in, more important in my life than Jesus. Any but first means that Jesus isn't first. Any but first means that Jesus isn't first. If Jesus is first, he'll be the why, he'll be the motive in front of and behind everything. If Jesus is first, he'll be the motive for my family. He'll be the why for my family. If Jesus is first, he'll be the why for my responsibility. If Jesus is first, he'll be the why for my community. So there cannot be a but first if Jesus 
is going to be first. Any but first means that Jesus isn't first. And I think we have to ask ourselves, are we compromising the mission? Because we're constantly looking back and forth between following Jesus and following our but firsts. I'll follow you, Jesus, but first. Yeah, yeah, I'll follow you, Jesus, but first. But first. And what does it look like to put Jesus first in everything? Well, he becomes the source of my why. He, he becomes the source of my existence. He becomes the source of my reason for living. He is why I live. Everything in my life revolves around Jesus and what he's done for me and, and the power that he's given and, and the identity that he's given to me. He is the source of my why. He's also the source of truth and the focus of my thoughts. He's, he's the motive of my heart, and he is the consuming thought of my mind. He, he, is, he is what drives my desire and my affection and my passion, but he is also the consuming focus of my thoughts, my mind. He is the truth. He's not just the source of my why and the source of truth, but he's also the source of my identity, just like that cell relies on the nucleus to know what it is. He is the source of my identity. When he is at the source of everything in my life, then I know who I am because he is the source of it all. He is in the center. And then he becomes the source of how I live my life. He becomes the source of my action. He becomes the motive for how I'm living day in and day out. And it doesn't stop there because he then motivates me to love others like he loved me. See, putting Jesus first is living a life where Jesus is the central focus of everything. Jesus is the nucleus. Every area of my life revolves around and circles around Jesus as the central point of my life. My work, my faith, my family, my relationships, my recreation, my adventure, my hobbies. Everything I do, I have to do while looking at Jesus. And if I can't do it while looking at Jesus, then I shouldn't be doing it at all. See, if I, if I have to look away from Jesus to pursue something, there's a problem. If, if, I, if I have to turn my head away from Jesus, we're off track. We're going to find ourselves drifting until we're headed towards what we're looking at. This is one reason I think church and Christian community and small groups and relationships with other believers is so important. So if we don't spend enough time, if we don't spend sufficient time around others who have Jesus as their central focus, it becomes easier and easier to see Jesus as something that I add to my life and not the thing my life centers around. Someday, as part of our you know, new attenders class or new members class or whatever it is, I hope to be able to make this uh, wooden gear thing is uh, the, the best way I can describe it. But if you can, you know, you know what a gear looks like, right? Yes, okay. 
So, so you've got a gear, and just, uh, just imagine these, these domains of life that we just talked about, that, that you've got your work, and that's one gear on the, on the wall. You've got your work gear, you've got your family gear, you've got your relationships, you've got recreation, you've got adventure, you've got hobbies. You know, all the different spheres of your life are, are different gears on this board that go, go around it. And our typical Christian approach is that we, we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, and what we think that means is that then I go to my work gear, and, and I just add this little little gear right next to it, the Jesus gear, and, and as the work gear spins, it's got just a little bit of Jesus in it. And then, and then we've got our family gear, and the family gear is going to spin like the family gear has always spun, but I'm just going to add a little bit of Jesus to it. And so, so the family gear keeps spinning like the family gear has always spun, and I've got just this little Jesus gear that spins a little bit with it. And we do the same with our work gear and our neighborhood gear and our, you know, our, our friends gear and all the different gears that we have in our life. We, we, just, we, leave, we leave the gears exactly like they are and we just add a little bit of Jesus to it so when that gear is spinning, it's got just a little bit of Jesus flavor in it. And I think that's our approach, our general approach to following Jesus is that, is that we want to take the different aspects of our lives, the different parts of our lives, and just add enough Jesus on it so it appears like we have added Jesus to our lives, like we are Christians. But that's not how God designed it to work. And, and so now imagine that same board, that same board with all the gears. You've got your gears all the way around it, and you've got then this great big Jesus gear. And when you bring in the Jesus gear and you put it right here in the middle of everything, right in the center of it, and it's got one handle on it, everything is connected to it. And so all that that happens is that Jesus gear spins and every other gear on the board spins with it. As, As this Jesus gear is rotating and going around, it gives life and it gives light and it gives truth and it gives peace and it gives understanding and it gives purpose and it gives meaning to everything else that is happening on that board. You see, when Jesus is at the center of our life, it makes everything else in our life work like it's supposed to work. But when Jesus is not the center of our life, then we are trying to add Jesus to things that he wanted to actually have total control over. Jesus has to be the nucleus of our lives. He has to be the cream in the middle of the Oreo. So what would it look like? Maybe put better, what will your life look like when you make Jesus the center of your life? Not what could, what might it look like, but what will your life look like? Start to think about your life and and think about how God has put all these different spheres in your life. And what will your life look like when Jesus is at the center of your life? What will it look like when when Jesus is at the center of what you think is normal, what's conventional, what, what is the normal way to live a life. When Jesus is at the middle of that driving that, what will that look like? When, when Jesus is at the center of your obligations and, and, and all of the things that we feel like we're obligated to, what will happen to those obligations when Jesus is at the center and he's the one driving it? What will happen to your life when Jesus is at the center of your affections and everything that you love and care the most about is Jesus at the center of the 
equation. What will your life look like when Jesus is the center? I think we need to ask ourselves, are there any areas in our lives where we can't look at that thing and Jesus at the same time? Is there something consuming our focus? Is there something that, that's consuming our attention and our affection? But when we look at that, we have to look away from Jesus to look. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 5 says, But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having, listen to this, having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with such people. See, adding a little bit of Jesus to all the realms and spheres of your life is having a form of godliness but denying its power. If we're just trying to add Jesus to, to little bits of our lives, we're, all we're doing is trying to have a form of godliness. We're trying to look Christian. We're trying to appear Christian, but we're denying the power of Christianity. And, and our desire is not to be people who look like Christ, but people who are becoming like Christ. We want to be transformed into the image of Christ, not just kind of look like him a little bit on the outside when it's convenient. See, we want to be people. We exist. You've seen this a little bit, and we're talking about it more and more. We exist to see people and places transformed by the presence and power of Christ in me. That, that when we go out into the world and we are surrounded by people who don't believe, then the presence of power of Christ that is in me and in the heart of all who believe, sitting right there at the very center of everything that we do, the presence and power of Christ is there. And when the presence and power of Christ is somewhere, it transforms the area. It transforms whatever is around it. Are we just adding little bits of Jesus or is he at the center driving the whole thing? It says, have nothing to do with such people who have a form of godliness but deny its power. And I had to ask myself, what if I have become that person? What if I have become the person who has a form of godliness but denies its power? What do I do then? What do I do if I, if I like the idea of Christ and Christianity and Easter and Jesus dying on the cross for me and all the feel-good parts of it, but my life hasn't really 
started to revolve around Jesus. He's not first in everything. What do I do? Well, I think the only thing to do is to repent. We have to repent. Repentance is a change of thinking that leads to a change of action. We, we've simply defined it as, as, as a turning, you know, as turning away from something and turning towards Christ. And that, and that does have the idea in there, but it's not strong enough because, because repentance, when you turn away from something and you turn towards Christ, that means that you also have a hatred for what you turned away from. And, and I think still so many of us wrestle with, okay, well, I want to turn towards Christ and all that Christ has for me, but I still really kind of like this thing. And we spend our lives on the seesaw trying to balance right in the middle between what God wants for our lives and what we want for our life. But like we said at the beginning, the kingdom of God isn't about personal greatness, it's about personal sacrifice. The kingdom of God isn't a ladder to climb, it's a cross to carry. And so if we're going to be true kingdom people, people of the kingdom of God, we actually have to repent. And that means a change of thinking. We have to, we have, to have a change of thinking, not just a change of obligation and action, but a change of thinking that says, I hate that thing that's keeping me from Jesus, and I am now going to pursue Jesus with my whole life. I, I hate this thing. Okay, so what about, what about in the context of here? So do we have to hate our families? Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, that's a difficult question. That's a hard one to answer. But Jesus does actually say later in the book of Luke that we have to hate our families. So what does that mean? Okay, so if I'm supposed to repent and I'm supposed to turn away from this thing, I'm supposed to have hatred in my heart for that thing, and I'm supposed to turn towards Jesus, but I'm supposed to hate my family? How am I supposed to hate my family when I'm supposed to love my family and I'm supposed to sacrifice my family and serve my family? Because that's also in the Bible. Isn't that a contradiction? Well, not really if you think about it right. See, how did Jesus love us? What does the Bible say? How did Jesus love us? Unconditionally. Sacrificially. And what did you say? In what way? Yeah, while we were still sinners, he died for us, right? This is what love looks like in the kingdom. Love sacrifices itself for the betterment of others. This is what, what love is. So love is, is putting Jesus first. And if we're going to really love our families, the only way to actually love our families is to die to what we think loving our families looks like. It, it, is, it is to hate the idea of family as the world understands family. It is, it is to... It is to put Jesus so far in front that compared to following Jesus, it's hatred. But what I know, Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, by putting Jesus first at the center of everything is the actual only way for your family to be held together, for, for your life to be held together. So when Jesus is first, when Jesus is the nucleus, when he's at the center, when I put Jesus first, when I love him more than anything else on the planet, then everything else in my life will be held in place. And you can see this in the lives of, of Christians who go out and they live their lives this way, that, that they actually kind of become you know, a, a, a thing that is used by God to hold things together. And that the presence of Christ in people becomes the nucleus that starts to hold other things together. And people start to experience things like peace and hope and joy and love and all of these good things just as a result of being around people who put Christ first. And so even our families cannot be the first and primary focus of our lives. Because if we're looking at that first, Jesus is still not first. Jesus is the only thing that can hold our lives together. So what have we put in the center of our life, our lives besides Jesus? What is consuming all of our attention and our affection? What is driving everything that we do? What do we need to turn away from? What is consuming all of our focus, keeping us from following Jesus? I'm sure all of us have something. I'm sure there are things in my life that I need to repent of following and focusing on. He says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. We don't sing this song anymore. It's an old song, but it's one I remember very vividly growing up. You can sing it with me if you remember. But it went something like this. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. We get stuck on that part a little bit. So I want to follow Jesus, but that, okay, hang on. The world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, 
still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I believe God has pointed us in a direction as a church from which we cannot turn back. One of the things that was good about this conference I went to was just a confirmation of some of the things that God has been saying to me and to us as a church over the last several months. One of those things being, are you ready? Are we ready for what God wants to do? If there's something else in our life that's more important to us than Jesus, then we're not yet ready. If even in our pursuit as a church, there is something to us as a church that is more important than Jesus as a church, then we're not yet ready. We have to die to what we think our idea of church is supposed to look like and let Jesus be the primary focus and central nucleus to what church is going to be here in our church. And as I've been praying, and this might sound weird to some of you, but... but um, you, you need to know I grew up Wesleyan, which is a, you know, a little bit more Pentecostal, and um, I studied at Indiana Wesleyan University and at Multnomah Bible College, which is a little bit more conservative Baptist, and I've been both in Baptist churches and in Wesleyan churches. And, but as I've been praying and really leaning in and listening to God and what God has for us, I feel like what God has given us to do as a church is somewhat similar to what he told Elijah to do with the dry bones out in the desert. Anyone remember what he said? What did he say? What did he say? No. Rise up. Yeah. He told him, prophesy, prophesy to the bones to rise up and, and live again. to speak life to the dead. And, and Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. If no one comes to the Father except by me. If we're going to actually experience life, it's only through the door of Jesus Christ. And, and the only way we as a church will ever experience the life of Christ in this church is by actually going through the door of Jesus Christ, by, by following him. And that's only one small, narrow gate that we can go through is the door and the gate of Jesus Christ. But if we walk through that door, we can come in and we can find greener pastures. We can find protection. We can pr find care and, and, and provision. We can find all that life was supposed to be. But we have to die to what we thought church was supposed to be and let God speak life into what he wants our church to be? Are we willing to, to die to what we think life is? Are we willing to die to what we think church is? Are we willing to die to all of the ideas that we have held on to and clung to of what we think it's supposed to be and just die to those things and just say, Jesus, you're the center of it all. 
And whatever you say, I know you will sustain because in you, it's all held together. So this is a place of life. This is a place of life that God is bringing new life into his body. This is a place where God is bringing new life into the church, where God is going to work through all of us to bring new life into lives that are dead, lives that are trapped, lives that are in the bondage and, and, and slavery of a life that they thought was life that they don't realize is death. And, and God is going to use us to bring new life. He's going to bring new life to us and through us as we put him at the central focus and live and make everything in him we live and move and have our being everything is all about Jesus and we're going to make him the most central thing about everything we do here as a church and that is what life is that's what the life of a follower looks like that's what it looks like to be a disciple and that's what I want for me for all of us here in this room to put Jesus at the center of it all let's stand together Heavenly Father, thank you for Oreos. Thank you for what it means. Thank you for the idea that we can wrap our lives around you and with you at the center of it all, with you the central focus of everything, we can actually experience life like you wanted for us. Father, if there's anything in the center of our lives that's not supposed to be there, open our eyes to it in this moment. I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you move in our hearts and our minds to go into the deepest recesses of every single person in this room. Go in and peel back the layers of anything that is in our hearts that's not supposed to be there. And Father, bring it to the light in this very moment that you may deal with it and you may set us free from it so that we may actually get the thing that's keeping you from being in the center of our lives out of the way. We repent away from that and we turn toward you. We change our thinking and accept the new truth of what it means to follow Jesus. And in Jesus' name, we embrace the life that we have been given in Jesus as a church. Father, we ask that you that you push those things to the forefront of our minds, that you may deal with them. Not that you may condemn us, but that you may replace them with your love and with your grace and with your truth, with your hope, with your life, with your peace and with your joy, that we may experience what you have for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.